my cats are growing older and louder. And this recording, the usual time that we finish this recording is half an hour after the usual time that they eat. So they may make an appearance later. <laughs> Excellent. We will see if you suddenly hear some uh, frantic meowing in the background. It means they are hungry. I am recording on a new computer. That was fast. Isn't that exciting? It is exciting, but that was fast. Like a, the, your previous computer, you only had that for... Two or three years. Really? Yeah. I thought it was longer than that, uh, shorter than that. No, I've had, it, I've had it for a few years. But anyway, this is not an upgrade. This is an addition. This is a desktop computer. Oh, okay. So my previous computer remains my primary laptop computer. But mm. for the last few years, I haven't had a desktop. And I splashed out over Christmas on an iMac Pro, oh, right. which is very fancy. Mm. So it's very exciting. It's, uh, I, I will leave the full review for the many, many other podcasts and people that have done it. But suffice to say, it's very nice. Do you need all of that processing power, Denny? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of this whole thing, isn't it? <laughs> that... No, but it is nice. I mean... My other computer is a MacBook Adorable, mm. the little tiny one that is the first generation of those. And it's a great computer and actually suffices for most of my needs, but it's very much at the opposite end of the scale to the right. iMac Pro. Yes. And it's, it's great, except when I want to play about with game stuff. I don't make games professionally anymore, but in my spare time, it's nice sometimes to play about with some graphic stuff. Right. Maybe try and write something on Shader Toy or maybe play about in Unity a little bit or, you know, mm. all those sorts of things. And they're all possible on the little MacBook, but they're just, you know, it's not really what it's optimized towards. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I find myself not doing those things. And it is nice to be on a computer where the only limit is my own willingness to put the effort in. Like, sure. there's, if, if I feel like doing playing about with unity or even unreal engine which is very heavy then i can just do that without really giving it a second thought the other day i was playing about with renoise mm. i installed renoise on it and was following the tutorials and you know and i have yet to close an app since i bought it <laughs> it's got 64 gigabytes of ram and 10 cores so I, I've, I've just opened apps and left them open and just steadily increasing apps and i still only used up half my ram so excellent that's nice that's nice <laughs> closing apps is such a hassle really isn't it such a chore well it's not the closing them it's the you know having to open them again yeah <laughs> right <laughs> right Anyway, so that so I had to this is the first time recording on this new computer which meant I had to reinstall call recorded for FaceTime and all those sorts of things before we could get set up. Yes, yeah, so new computer, new year and this is actually our first recording in the new year because we did our new year's episode which went out a couple of weeks ago. Right. We recorded that before we hit the new year and uh, then a couple of weeks ago when we would usually have been recording it I was in los angeles for a conference so mm. that's why we couldn't record and actually a little bit of follow-up but we we talked during the last episode about trains and about the signs that you have in japanese train stations yeah the chikawakan chikawanzai and all those and we were talking about it as sort of a, a uniquely japanese problem and i think at one point during the record, recording i said it's a shame that you even need those signs, but you do. 
right, or something along those lines. Well, I noticed while I was in L.A. and I rode the metro there, they had those signs. Really? So they have them here as well. They had them being California. They had them in both Spanish and English. And the, the Spanish one was No se tolerará, which is similar to the Japanese one. I think there's a, a series of posters in Japan, which is Zeta Yurusanai. Mm. Uh, they have as another one that we didn't mention last time. But it uh, means, you know, it will not be tolerated. Those are the same. But the English version of the same poster, exactly the same design, just the, the copy was in English instead of Spanish. And the main catchphrase on that was, it's off limits, hmm. which I thought was rubbish. Because there's no, unless you read the small print, you didn't actually get a feeling for what was off limits. And it's almost shying away from trying to say the thing. I mean, I guess with the, you know, it won't be tolerated. It's not saying what won't be tolerated either, but it just seems, feels a bit stronger. Mm. So anyway, so I criticisms of the, of the English copy, but still, this is a, obviously an issue here as well and is being met with the same sort of posters. One sort of interesting thing is that the, the small print copy on the posters, in contrast to Japan, where I felt like the focus was on how you report the person who's done it. Yeah. On these posters, the focus was, as a victim, how you find support for yourself hmm. a little bit interesting uh, so i don't know slight slight different skew but anyway that was a that was a thing that i noticed so it's not just the japanese problem this this problem does uh, exist here as well right well that's uh that's sad but it's also interesting as well that the angle is is very different right yeah uh, and the other thing that my wife has a bone to pick with you uh, <laughs> yep about uh, your description of the New Year's meal, which we were talking about all the different ingredients and how there's a lot of different wordplay. Yeah. And that was all true. Many of the ingredients are, are similar in where our respective wives come from. Mm. But one thing that you didn't mention, I think we just moved on before we got around to it. Mm. But of course, the mochi that goes in the soup. Mm. That you have yeah. on New Year's Day. That's that's sort of the whole point. Right. So I felt like we couldn't, we couldn't leave it without having mentioned that. But Because the miso, it's white miso in some regions in Japan. It's it's a different miso in other regions. You know, all these things might be different. But the mochi is definitely going to be there, right? Yeah. Now, my uh, description of the foods was uh, lacking not only mochi, but there were a whole range of other things that I'd forgotten to uh, mention when we talked about that. So... Uh, yes, I'll I'll uh, take responsibility for forgetting to mention mochi. Probably the reason that it didn't come to mind is I actually don't like mochi. What? Yeah, so this is um, – I'm uh, very proud of the fact that I'm a very appreciative, very non-fussy eater, and I will happily and gratefully eat pretty much anything. And I think that that um, – you know, I try to uh, raise my children in the same way because, uh, you know, everybody uh, everybody's different, but uh, – you know, I really think that food is is uh, something that's very precious and that needs to be appreciated and taken very seriously and mm. just not taken lightly. You know, it's not something for you to be too opinionated about. You enjoy and you appreciate all food. That's my own opinion. However, <laughs> <laughs> mochi is hard for me. So I think what it is is that the the texture of mochi when you first put it into your mouth, mm. it plays tricks. It seems to play tricks with my mind in that what my mouth is expecting to experience when I'm eating mochi is not what is actually happening. And the fact that you chew it, mm. but you can't kind of 
like chewing it often seems to have no effect. It's kind of like chewing gum that you kind of just, I, I, I basically, essentially my mouth just doesn't understand how to properly eat it. Mm. And I end up either swallowing it too soon and then choking or I end up, end up sort of sitting there for like five minutes kind of chewing on this kind of elastic ball of, of rice mass <laughs> Not actually having it change in its consistency at all, and my mouth, my mouth is just thinking, okay, I've been chewing on this for a long time. When can I swallow it? Because it's not mm. the consistency is not changing here. Am I doing the right thing? We should probably mention for people who who aren't familiar that mochi is is pounded rice, yeah, and it's pounded until it it forms this sort of sticky, stretchy, yeah, ball. Yeah, so Japanese rice, as many people probably know, Japanese rice is a little bit different from other Asian rice in that uh, the grain is a lot shorter and generally it absorbs a lot more water, mm -hmm. which means that Japanese rice sticks together much more, uh, which is the reason why you can make things like sushi because the rice is stuck to itself. Whereas things like basmati rice or jasmine rice or these other like long grain rice, uh, they tend to, after being cooked, they tend to... Uh, be a little bit more dry so you, you feel more like you're eating grains whereas with Japanese rice where it's much more sticky and wet it's more like you're eating sort of chunks of rice and that has lots of interesting properties such as making sushi and the other thing is that if you if you mash it like with a hammer enough all of the basically that the rice the kernel breaks down and it and it just sort of everything sticks to itself and it becomes kind of like a dough right but uh, very very What's the right word? Not elastic. Is elastic the right, the right word? Elastic. Is, well, no, because it doesn't bounce back. Can't, well, gloopy. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> gloopy. Yeah. <laughs> and the funny, the basically stretchy. Basically, what what I was saying just a moment ago about eating it is that it does require a special. It, it does require practice because unlike most foods, the more you chew on it, it just sort of takes the chewing and just becomes more goopy. It, it doesn't actually disintegrate and doesn't actually um, break down like crunchy foods or you know most other foods do you like toffee like caramel like well i think of toffee as being like caramel but a bit harder and it has that same property it's similar to mochi in that it, it starts off harder than mochi does but as you chew it it becomes very chewy and and sort of starts to stretch out and mm. takes quite a lot of chewing before you can... I, I don't know that we call it toffee in australia or oh, there is toffee obviously but um i know it as like hard caramel mm. and a hard caramel, I, you know, you suck on it, uh, and then if you try to chew it, it'll basically stick to your teeth for about an hour. <laughs> is that like toffee? I guess so, but it's different from like a, a Werther's Original or something, which is is hard, hard, right? If you were to bite into it, it would crack. Right. A toffee wouldn't crack so much as just steadily become softer as you masticate. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I um, mochi, anyway, after 16 years, I couldn't get used to it. And uh, every year when New Year's would come around would be the one time that it's obligatory to eat mochi. And uh, <laughs> yeah, couldn't, <laughs> I just couldn't, couldn't really get used to it. This is basically comes down to my mouth expecting to be able to disintegrate this thing, but it doesn't happen like that. So I don't actually know when to swallow it. Mm. And, and it's just like a physically uncomfortable feeling of constantly chewing but not knowing when it's okay to swallow that's uh you know i think like several people die each year from i was about to say i don't know what the statistics are but yes yeah, several people do die at new year's each year when they have their much usually old people <laughs> and foreigners like me <laughs> i'm not sure 
if there are any foreigners there. <laughs> um, there've probably been some, but well, don't let uh, dear listener Alex's description put you off because mochi is one of the most delicious foods in existence. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. Yeah, uh, even if that opinion is wrong. Yeah, I mean, delicious. I mean, it's basically rice. So. <laughs> It is. I mean, you well, you have it in stuff, though, right? And it's lovely. It just mochi, fresh mochi. Maybe I should put some. I should find a video or something of them doing the the mashing up because you you have this big sort of stone bowl and you have one person who's folding it back on itself and the other person who's hitting it with a hammer. That I've done several times. And then you sort of make it. And and when it's freshly made, you just dip it in a bit of kinako, which is like a sweet. It's not sugar, but it's almost like a, a sugary sort of sweet powder that you you dip it in and then just eat it like that it's delicious yeah lovely mashing the mochi is something that i've done several times but uh usually i get out of having to eat it by just saying no no i'll i'll take another turn at mashing it's okay right, right. <laughs> you you eat first i'll i'll keep mashing over here and do you have on your on your soup that you have on on new year's day do you have see this little sprinkled dark seaweed i can't remember what the name of it is but there's a specific kind of seaweed that that we have that where my wife is from they they have it but it seems to be very local to them because when we were in kobe or kyoto you know even kobe which is close we would not be able to find this in the supermarkets hmm. so it doesn't seem to be a very common thing but there's a specific kind of seaweed that, that you sometimes have in it so do you not have it with seaweed? So you're not talking about nori, are you? I'm not talking about the not nori as in the, the flat, hard one. It's kind of stringy with a kind of uh, white powder on it. Is that the one? I don't think there's... It sort of looks like it's got a, a little dusty white powder on it and it, it's actually hard. And when you put it into the soup, it, it softens slightly? No, no, no. It, okay. This is more of the, the, the seaweed itself forms like a powder. Okay. And you just have a little bit sprinkled on top. We do have nori as well, but mm. no, so that is just a, a super local thing. And do you have katsuoboshi? Katsuoboshi, which is the fish flakes that you have on top of okonomiyaki and things like that. Katsuoboshi, yes. Yeah, you have that in it. Yeah. I think that's a Kansai thing, but I'm not sure. Anyway, very interesting. There's lots of, if anyone else has been living in other areas of Japan and wants to comment on the reddit with with their local recipes then uh be interested to hear because i don't know anything outside of kansai really yeah to be honest it's been a few um it's been a few years since we've been able to actually do that just because we have a three-year-old well three-year-old now but a two-year-old last year and a one-year-old the year before that so right. the new year big feast cooking on the 31st is uh, logistically a little complicated at this moment so uh that's probably another reason why my memory was uh, not so good when i was trying to recall the different things that my wife used to make because it, it had been it's been several years since we've actually done that so right. that's my excuse anyway <laughs> and mochi right so yes. uh yeah another um thing that's happened for me over the past uh, few weeks since we spoke last mm. is i have found myself a band oh have you oh very good it's a rather rather interesting and unusual band to be involved with and uh, it's it's a real privilege basically um a friend of my son's his father i met him at a school a school function we like an open day for the school and mm. just started talking to a random nice looking father standing in the corner holding a paper cup full of coffee and um turns out that he was a musician not professionally but uh as a side thing, he's a musician and he plays guitar and a whole bunch of other instruments. And mm. he said, um, 
the current project that he's working on is he plays in the backing band of a 200-voice pop choir. Whoa. So like 200 people singing basically mostly gospel arrangements of pop music. Mm. And this backing band happened to need a bass player. So he said, uh, come over to my house and um, let's just have a quick session. Basically, it was kind of like an audition. Mm. And uh, so, I, I, yeah, took my bass and I went and uh, it seems that I'm in. Oh, cool. So that's uh, a pretty, uh, it's a pretty amazing, um, amazing privilege. Now, one thing that I, <laughs> I was looking forward to tell, telling you about and uh, also talking about, to begin with, the first impression uh, of playing with this semi, uh, not really professional, I suppose amateur guitarist mm. is, wow, Swedish people take their music very seriously and they do not mess around. <laughs> and I mean that not in the sense of, of um, you know, being too concerned with details or anything like that, but this guy was extremely good. And it got me thinking... It was interesting that, you know, here's a guy who's been playing guitar for about 20, 25 years. Mm. And previously when I was in Japan playing in different bands, I'd played with musicians there who had also, you know, been playing their instruments for a little more than two decades. And it was really fascinating experiencing the difference because one thing I noticed is that here, mm. technically, some of the players may not be on par with their peers in Japan. Mm. However, there's this undeniable feel and this undeniable relaxed confidence in the the flow of the music and the rhythm and the emotion and the expression, which is something that was very, very new to me after having played, you know, 16 years in, in about four or five bands in Japan. Because in Japan, what I found was that the musicians there were extremely concerned with technical proficiency and with technical accuracy. Mm. However, sometimes, you know, a little bit clinical on the uh, side of expression or basically the artistic side of capturing the mood. Mm. Yeah, sometimes, I mean, obviously it's a broad generalization and I was lucky to play with many musicians in Japan who had a, a wonderful balance between technique and the artistic side of things. But just in general, you know, I found that um, in Japan they were very pro-technique and, I mean, I can't talk in general at all yet in Sweden because I've only experienced this one band so far, but I was just floored at how good <laughs> how good this, guitar, this guitarist was despite not technically being, you know, um, the best guitarist out there. Right. Just this, this confidence and this, this I, guess, I, I guess the best term for it in modern English would be swagger. <laughs> just like this this confidence in in his ability to express certain emotions on demand mm -hmm. and a relaxed laid back riding along with with the song's emotion and the song's tempo because mm. one one thing that you often get with people who are highly technically proficient but are less experienced with the emotional aspect of music is that they will rush meaning when the music builds up they they get faster. Right. And that's a natural thing because, you know, you, the, your body uh, starts to feel tense or you could be sort of anxious about, about, you know, for example, if you're a drummer, you'll play a pattern and in between the changes between the patterns, you'll have a feel. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in, in other parts of a band as well, uh, especially if you're in an accompanying role, 
and for bassists as well, you know, you'll have a part and then when there's a gap, which is appropriate, depending on what the vocal is doing, you may put in a fill. Right. And a very common thing that I'd found in Japan at around a certain skill level was people would rush in those parts and, and myself too. Mm. Just is kind of like this building up of this tension and that comes out as uh, your technique kind of losing the grip for a little bit and, and just sort of slipping a little faster ahead of the beat for a moment. Right, right. And there was absolutely none of that. It was like so, uh, it, was, it was probably the most comfortable and relaxed I have, have felt as a bass player playing along with somebody else yeah. in a long time. And it was it was a really interesting moving experience that, and I'll keep you updated on this because I have a feeling it's going to be a, a progressive journey and a progressive discovery for myself, having played for you know, more than um, 10, 15 years with musicians who are highly focused on technique coming now to musicians who are not unfocused, not not focused on technique. Mm. That is, their technique comes simply from the years that they've been playing and the practice that they've gotten. Mm. But it's less about, to use another modern English musician's term, less about woodshedding. I'm not familiar <laughs> with that one. <laughs> the idea is that uh, you... You do your technique practice in a wood wooden shed. Right. So you sort of sit there for several hours playing the same scale to a metronome, mm -hmm. or, or yeah, and the, yeah, wood shedding is a term that's uh, sometimes used on online forums to talk about basically uh, honing your chops. Right. So anyway, the focus is less on wood shedding and less on these kinds of uh, repetitive mastery of certain techniques, and more on just the expression and the the vibe and the atmosphere and the artistic objective of the song. Mm. So, yeah, it was really, really an eye-opening experience. And so the next step for this band is that I will uh, go along to play with the choir. We're going to try out with the choir next, which is in two weeks. Oh, cool. I have uh, two songs to learn for that. I will be learning um, Freedom by George Michael, mm -hmm. which was the song that I tried out with this guitarist, which is um, a uh, very, very... Interestingly enough, very technically demanding song, especially for the guitarist and for the bass player. Mm. And yet, uh, you know, this guy, it was just a, a breeze mm. playing this with him. And the other song is um, Space Oddity by mm. David Bowie, of course. Oh, sounds exciting. So, so how did this go? Did you just go and jam? Did he have sheet music for you? Or were you just playing by ear? Or what? Were you just... Yeah, he basically... Improvising? He basically, he said... Um, uh, where one of the songs that we're doing in the choir is Freedom by George Michael. So once you learn that and then uh, come over and we'll play together first. Oh, okay. So he gave you, did, 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 he just gave you the song ahead of time and you went and learned it however you wanted by listening or by looking at the music or whatever you wanted to do. Yeah, exactly. So in this, right. in this specific case, in the case of this song by George Michael, it's a 90s, mm. 90s pop song uh, and the bass is a synth bass, which has been programmed into a sequencer. So it's, it follows a pattern. Right. And uh, it's a very rhythmically complicated pattern. And so this particular song doesn't give too much room for improvisation. You know, you either you're following the pattern, which locks into uh, certain openings in the drum part, the piano part, mm. and the guitar part. So mm. there's not too much room for um, embellishment. Mm. The other song, which I'll be learning uh, now for the next practice, Space Oddity, is amazing. The, the bass part is really, really articulate and very subtle and very uh, nicely complementary of the uh, fantastic lyrics and fantastic uh, performance by Bowie himself. Mm. And that is also another song that doesn't really leave too much space 
for too much improvisation. You know, you are right. either doing something completely different or you are doing the original line in the in all of its glory. So I will probably choose the latter in this case just to uh, to keep it more faithful. And of course, if you've got 200 people singing on top of you, it doesn't really matter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, yeah, I'll keep you posted on how this goes because I have a feeling it's going to be an interesting journey of discovery for me too. Yeah, sounds exciting. Do they are they do they put things up on YouTube and things like that or SoundCloud or? This is a project, so it actually is working towards a public performance in May. Hmm. And after the the May performance, obviously there'll be probably plans for future performances. Uh, right. So I, hopefully, with two hundred people, hopefully somebody's going to remember to get us <laughs> get something out and record it. Right. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive. They're planning on doing something in May, and they're still searching for a bassist at the end of January. Yeah. Well, the um the backing band is at the moment just the guitarist and a pianist, mm. and they've been looking for a uh, they have a candidate for the drums, and now. You know, all being well, they've found a bass player. Hopefully, oh, cool. If they, if the rest of the band likes oh. me too, so uh, yeah. Are you going to meet all two hundred of them? I guess I will. Oh. I guess the uh, yeah. So as my first foray into the um, into uh, uh, music performance in Sweden, I have to say I'm I'm quite moved. And let's let's hope it wasn't just uh, this one particular guitarist who happened <laughs> to be very good. Well, at the very least, you're going to be meeting you know two hundred. And two, the pianist and the guitarist, musical people in Sweden. So even once this project is over, mm. you'll then have a lot more contacts. You'll have a, a better starting point for discovering other musical projects, I imagine. Yeah, let's hope so. You know, one thing um, I wanted to ask you about, one thing I've noticed, obviously, you know, I've been here in Stockholm for several months now, mm. uh, and it's all very new to me. One thing that my wife and I have noticed is that singing seems to take place in Swedish culture. It takes a place that is is very different to what I've experienced before in Australia and certainly in Japan. Hmm. Singing here is is seems to be much more commonplace. And I if like you see it at, for example, my son's school and you see it at uh, my daughter's kindergarten hmm. and uh, all of the preschool events and stuff. You know, the the preschool events will always have two of the staff who are music performers mm. with a piano or a guitar and they'll be singing songs in every session and you always see all the parents there together singing as well, mm. singing these like well-known children's songs. Now, uh, what I wanted to ask you is in your experience growing up in the countries that you've grown up in mm. and including Japan as well, mm. in my experience I found that singing is the one form of musical performance that people were the most reluctant with. And in Australia, when I grew up, even like uh, karaoke, karaoke mm. was never really that popular because that's obviously singing and you need to be really, really junk, drunk to actually enjoy, enjoy it. That was kind of the, right. the general understanding right. about karaoke. It's, it's for getting drunk too. So we all know about the, you know, the uh, wonderful physical effects and the medical benefits of singing and how it, it really uh, can bring a sense of joy. And then ironically, at least in Australia, from what I remember, singing is is the one that people are least are the most reluctant with and the least enthusiastic about yeah so uh, that's the opposite here is is my point i think yeah i mean i think that's that's very true in the uk i feel like there is a, a definite anglo-saxon reluctance to sing in public that exists in the uk and america and australia as well i wouldn't have said that i felt that in japan i actually noticed it i i not 
perhaps to the same extent that you're noticing it in Sweden, but I felt in Japan sometimes that singing was much more embedded into the culture. Karaoke is a thing that just people just do mm. normally. Mm. And I think because it is a, a sort of social thing that most people do for fun and not to get drunk in, I do think there is a, a general, a generally higher level that people people have become comfortable singing in front of each other and so they've done it more and so they've got better. So I feel like your average Japanese person ends up being a, a better at singing along with pop songs, even if they're not like like super amazing singers, but just like humming a tune or singing along with a pop song or whatever, mm. are better at it than your average English person, certainly better than me. Mm. But I, I felt like that in Japan. Mm. Uh, so, you know, interesting, Sweden, Sweden obviously takes that even further, but it feels like a very sort of Anglosphere thing, mm. this reluctance to sing. I can't really remember... When I was in Spain, you know, I was very young and I don't really remember how much it was all involved with then. But you have a an image of sort of Mediterranean countries uh, and Italy in particular. <laughs> you sort of imagine everyone singing yeah. all the time. I don't know if there's any truth to that. You know, so I I very much have it in my head as an Anglo-Saxon Saxon or an English-speaking thing it's um uh i wouldn't say that's the case in ireland though ah good point yeah yeah very very true uh there's definitely a singing culture in ireland potentially also and in wales yeah wales and scotland perhaps strong as singing well, culture maybe. in wales i don't really know about scotland yeah i couldn't say either way because I, I, I can remember one time at the um the adelaide adelaide festival is like a a major arts event that comes to Adelaide mm. is it annually or maybe every four years or every two years, I forget now. Anyway, um, there was a special performance by a very famous Irish folk group. Mm. And one of the things that I can remember, my father and I went to see it, and one of the things that really riveted my father and I is the the ease with which I mean these guys are professional performers, so obviously they're you know, they're gonna be singing as their job, but right. as a musical performance with voice, you tend to expect that yeah, you know, it's like a it's like a band. You've got a backing band or an accompanist and you've got the person singing there with a microphone or whatever, it's something that you come to expect. However, in this case, the guy basically the musicians were all on stage and, you know, many of the songs in the performance would be just one person standing up coming to the front of the stage, no microphone or anything, and just standing there singing by himself. Mm. <laughs> just like straight out into the audience, just this one person's voice. And that I can remember as being extremely moving because as a group of, or as a culture, at least to my understanding, that was rather reluctant about the idea of singing, mm. to have somebody who clearly had no reservations at all about basically bearing his voice and standing in front of a whole crowd of people and just singing by himself mm. was was very very moving now that i'm here in sweden where people it it seems to be a similar uh, lack of uh, reluctance when it comes to singing and and people just seem to openly do it it makes more sense to me now but i just yeah it it reminded me of uh, the the singing culture and the folk music culture in ireland which which clearly doesn't have the reluctance that uh, that other countries do with singing. Mm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I'd be interested to hear from our international listeners because I know we've got some from various European countries and obviously our, our Thai listener as well. Uh, I'd, you know, quite a, a variety of different cultures there and I'd be very interested to hear how that mm. changes 
over you know in the different countries and how they you know how how much of a role singing takes in the culture how much hmm. it, it is it is kind of an everyday thing because you're right it definitely seems to be sort of hidden away in english and australian culture hmm. it has its place right i mean if you're in a band you might sing at a gig or if you are in a concert setting or something like that mm. but the idea of just communal singing mm. as a thing that people do together is not very much of a thing except of course for church right and you know at my school we had chapel every morning and so we had to sing hymns every morning and people who go to church regularly uh, same sort of thing but i couldn't really describe english church singing as singing so much as a sort of tired drone <laughs> i think eddie Izzard did a bit on uh on national anthems and how you've got uh all these sort of people singing about the the strength of the nation and things they believe in, in, in the, the english national anthem which is is god save the queen who one is probably one of the most saved people on the planet <laughs> and two <laughs> the way people are singing it, like, God save our grace. <laughs> I mean, just... You do not sound like you want her saved. I mean, that's, just, that's you... only because people only know the first four words, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, it is interesting. America plays an interesting part in this whole discussion. So I'm actually really looking forward to hearing from our numerous um, American friends of the show on our Reddit mm. uh, um, about um, singing in their upbringing as well, because uh, especially rural America and uh, obviously in the south parts of America as well, I guess it's a stereotyped image perhaps, but you know, singing in, in those parts seems to be something that comes very easily to people. Mm. As for metropolitan uh, America or you know the, the big cities and the yeah uh, that I'd be interested to hear what uh, people have to say about that. But yeah, it is interesting. You got a lot of people discussion. singing along with the music that's in their headphones here, which is new to me. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's not so much a communal thing as as a a very very private thing that is somehow being made public. Right, because <laughs> you, you can't hear the music they're singing along to. But they are singing along to it with gusto as they walk down the street. So that seems to be quite a common thing here. Mm. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Do you sing? I Well, not really. I'm quite bad at it, unfortunately. And I've tried many times to sort of improve, but it's one of those things that I, I've never really tried hard enough. Mm. I like do it for a bit and then I get sidetracked. Right. But I sing to myself. I mean, I, I play guitar and I, I sing along, but I don't really do that publicly. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I used to do it when my wife was in, but she asked me to stop. So. <laughs> <laughs> I really, it's just me on my own now. Yeah, I do enjoy karaoke. You know, I break out the Tom Waits, <laughs> but <laughs> everyone leaves. <laughs> it's a good way to clear out if you're in a shared sort of karaoke space and you want it to yourself. Right. So, yeah, I have a good technique. I have a bit of a problem in that my main instrument is obviously bass guitar. If there's anybody else uh, listening who's a bassist, please tell me this. How adept are you at singing or even talking while you play bass guitar? Because some people can do it extremely well. For example, Sting. Sting is, was the bass player for the police, but he's obviously the vocalist too. And he has absolutely no difficulty in separating his fingers from his voice. Mm. However, for me, uh, I have a serious physical handicap and I just cannot do it. 
I can't even talk while I'm playing bass. Yeah, I think we did talk about this once before, actually, when we were talking about the, you know, the difficulty of, of drumming while you're singing and, oh, and that's playing right. bass yeah, while you're singing. We did talk Bonus follow-up question. Can you eat mochi while playing bass? That is the... <laughs> Yes, probably. Is that if, obviously, you can't because you can't eat it when you're not playing bass. Maybe, maybe I could actually because there's no decision about swallowing. You just have to keep on moving your jaw, basically. Right. So <laughs> in, in rhythm. In rhythm. Yeah, maybe I could do. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah, very good. Anyway, I'll keep you posted on the uh, my band uh, adventures. Uh, should be interesting. This is an interesting way to start off my experience in Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll be interested to hear. Did you hear about uh, DuckDuckGo? We spoke about in a previous episode. As the, the search engine that I'm using, and they've literally just, I think today or yesterday, announced a new a new sort of plugin slash app that they're releasing. Okay. Have you heard anything about that? No, please tell me because actually I've started to use DuckDuckGo as my default uh, search engine. Have on you? My f- how well? How are you finding it? On my phone. On your phone. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm st- and how is that going? It's 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 great. To be uh, honest, uh, I don't use like I don't search for things on the internet that much on my phone because I'm mostly using apps. Mm. So the uh, chances to actually search for something are not that frequent for me on my phone, mm. uh, less so than my computer. But yeah, so far, I love the uh, the theming capability. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that <laughs> because it's like nothing to do with the actual quality of the search engine or the privacy or anything like that. But uh, yeah. I like the... Uh, like the one that looks like a, a terminal screen with the green text on the black background. I am not surprised. <laughs> I, I played about with all the themes and then I went back to the default one. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, well, cool. Yeah, see, see how it goes. I mean, I, I find stuff. Actually, somebody was saying the other day, somebody was was tweeting about this, but interestingly, Google seems to do a better job at all the sort of data mining and the machine learning and whatever stuff that they do to find the thing that you're looking for, right? They have an almost uncanny ability to see through the words that you actually type in the search box, get to the bottom of the thing you're actually looking for, and then find that, which is their major sort of selling point. DuckDuckGo can't really compete on that level, but they are, you know, they are arguing that they value your privacy more, and so you, you choose your priorities. Mm. But another interesting thing about DuckDuckGo that I didn't realize is they seem to hold a longer cache or an older cache. So there was somebody who was saying that they were doing very precise searches where on both Google and DuckDuckGo, you can actually search within a website. Did you know this? You can say like site colon and the, the address of the website. Yes. And it will restrict the search to be within just within that website so if you're looking for something you found yeah. on a particular website once you can you can do that yeah i use that frequently with discussion forums it's very useful right so this person was saying they they sometimes search for stuff on their own website mm. because they're just looking for a post they made like four years ago and right. they just, you know want to dig it up and they said that they would find that google sometimes would no longer have this post in its cache because it was too old oh interesting and DuckDuckGo would. So whereas Google was better, performed better as a general purpose search engine for finding anything and, and figuring out what it is you're actually looking for and all the rest of it. Right. DuckDuckGo was actually very good for this very narrow purpose of like searching for a specific string of text within a website. So that was a sort of interesting I didn't realize that there was any area in which they could actually beat Google on the quality of the search engine portion of it. Mm. So anyway, that was quite interesting. But they have today I think, or, or at least very recently announced a new, I think it's an app on mobile 
platforms and then a plugin for the various browsers mm. if you're on a, a PC or a Mac. And it is trying to bring together a lot of different privacy controls. So DuckDuckGo has always been, you know, the, the search engine that values privacy and it doesn't track you while you're searching, mm. but it doesn't help you the moment you click on the link that you found, it no longer helps you, right? Right. So what they're saying now is, you know, they, they want to try and, and just help you a bit more. Uh, once you've, you know, you've searched for something in DuckDuckGo, you click on the site and then what can they do to prevent that site from tracking you? So mm. they have this plugin and it disables various sort of well-known JavaScript tracking software or ad, you know, it works similarly to an ad blocker. I'm not sure, I haven't, it, it's just been announced, so I haven't had a chance to, to properly evaluate it, but I don't know if it acts as a full ad blocker mm. or if it's something you would want sort of as well as an ad blocker. Mm. It gives each site a rating based on whether the site is surfed over HTTP or HTTPS. Right. So whether it's an encrypted connection, uh, whether it has tracking JavaScript and things like that on it, and if so, how much. Uh, and also they've hooked up with uh, TOSDR. Do you, do you know about TOSDR? Uh, too long, didn't read? No. TLDR is too long, <laughs> didn't read. TOSDR is a play on that, which is terms of service, didn't read. Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, a website. It's a very good website. Uh, it, the, basically, they go through the terms of service for various well-known sites like Facebook and, and Google and everything. Hmm. And they read through all the legalese and summarize it so you can you can get a feel for the contents of the terms of service with, without having to wade through like 30 pages of, of legal text mm, interesting uh, so it's, it's quite a good site in general but they've hooked up with this DuckDuckGo pro plugin so that while you're on the site as part of this rating you can see how they scored on the terms of service didn't read website oh, okay whether they're considered to have you know, terms of service that guard your privacy or that impinge on your privacy or, you know, anywhere, anywhere in between. Uh, there's obviously, this is a very manual process. This is actual humans reading the legal text and rating it. So right. it's not automated. So it's, it's limited in terms of the websites that are actually featured on it. For example, one of the sites that I, I just installed the thing and looked on a couple of sites and Fastmail hasn't been analyzed. Mm. So Fastmail just has no score on this thing. Right. But other large sites like Reddit or Facebook or something like that, they do have they have been analyzed and they do have a sort of score. So mm. and then sometimes it will give you the <laughs> upgraded score. So it's like this this site would usually score a C. It gives it's like a grade, right? A B C. This guy, site would usually score a C. But we disabled the tracking software, so we've upgraded it to a B for you. Okay, which is an interesting thing. Hmm. Uh, but it's, I don't know. I haven't I haven't had a proper go with it yet. Everyone has to decide for themselves how much they trust hmm. browser plugins. Like it's an interesting uh, catch twenty two. Do you trust the people making the plugin more than the people writing the JavaScript that the plugin purports to block? Right. So that's that's a. a personal decision i know that safari does actually have some tracking prevention mm. features within it so even without installing this plugin you can actually get some of the benefits of preventing tracking software from working just using vanilla safari 
it's in the preferences. I don't know about Chrome or Firefox because I don't use them. But mm-hmm. so f- I'm not sure that this DuckDuckGo thing is is buying me much because I'm I'm on Safari. I've just installed it to sort of evaluate it. But I do quite like this rating thing. Mm. Like that's a nice touch that even if it's not adding anything, I don't know to what extent, you know, whether it blocks more trackers mm. or not. But ev- even if it has no value other than to tell me what trackers were on there that it's blocked. That's interesting mm. information. So I thought it was quite an interesting little thing. So I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. Following DuckDuck, yeah, DuckDuckGo's uh, slow, uh, gradual uh, development and um, increase of exposure as more people become aware of it has been very interesting. It's, it's a curious, uh, as I mean, obviously it's an extremely, extremely difficult field to break into mm. and you need to be, uh, you know, the, the field of search engines and you need to be doing something pretty amazing in order to get any traction against the big G. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we've seen many other search engines come and go trying to keep up with the big G, but it's it's uh, nigh impossible these days. But it's interesting that... Um, DuckDuckGo is uh, coming at it from a completely different angle and and seemingly doing quite well at it. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem to have been sort of getting a, a bit of mindshare in in recent years. Just, I mean, so this this DuckDuckGo thing now obviously is sort of I don't know if it acts as an ad blocker, but it's it's sort of starting to move into that area. Mm. Do you have an opinion on ad blockers? Do you use an ad blocker or anything like that? I do use an ad blocker, but not necessarily out of choice. Mm. I, I, we may have talked about browsers before, but for some strange reason, uh, I think I've said this exact phrase before when we talked about it last time, but I'll say it again. I'm using Opera. Right. And uh, I don't know why. Uh, I started using it like, um, yeah, we talked about it before, so I won't bother. Yeah, we did talk it. about that. And I think you did say that Opera was one of the first browsers to have ad blockers or something like that. Yeah, and so it still does. It has uh, an ad blocker that's on by default, mm. and you get a little thing up in the top that shows you how many ads on this site have been blocked. Uh, and they do it for speed reasons, I guess, primarily, mm. more so than uh, you know trying to declutter your internet experience. Mm. Obviously, you sites can load uh, marginally faster if they're not loading all of this uh, ad data and sending... Not marginally faster. They can load dramatically faster. Okay. It's the, the ad software and the amount of JavaScript that gets downloaded for ads these days is often many times larger than the content of the page that you actually want to load. That's, really? That's kind of one of the problems that has led to this standoff. Right. We have a kind of situation at the moment where there's there's a bit of an arms race going on where now all the major browsers support ad blockers. And even on mobile devices, you can install an ad blocker for Safari, for example. Mm. And so there's there's much more software support for blocking ads. And in response to that, obviously, a lot of websites that make their money off ads right. are saying well hang on we you know how how do we get paid yeah and so there's a, there's a bit of a debate going on there and, and it's quite interesting it's i feel like the ad industry has sort of made this problem for themselves because mm. this amount of javascript that gets downloaded the amount of tracking that gets done not only is it problematic from a privacy standpoint but you also making the browsing experience just just much slower and much worse i mean i these days regularly read websites which are like news articles Mm. which have an an advert that says so they've got the text of the news and then they've got a, a square sort of advert and it says the article continues 
following the advert. Right. And you scroll down and the article does continue. But like somehow the first couple of lines of the next paragraph have got hidden behind the advert. Right. And there's no way that I can tell to to sort of move the advert out the way or be able to... I have to sort of select the text and <laughs> select upwards and right. copy it into like a text if I want to read it, you know. Right. So it's like just really bad quality. Mm. I think there are, there are sites which do... Like if you look at Daring Fireball, for example, obviously John Gruber, who who runs that site, has very strong opinions about ads himself. And so he puts effort into making his adverts not too intrusive, mm. both on a from a design point of view and from a JavaScript privacy point of view. Uh, but, you know, there there are sites which are showing a way that it can be done. Right without being a problem but the vast majority of the industry is just has no concern for the user and this sort of ad blocking is a response to that and yet as far as i can tell nobody has recognized that like the ad industry's response to the rise of ad blockers is to start introducing anti-ad blockers that block access to the site if you have an ad blocker running yeah or um notifications i get that a lot because opera has the ad blocker on by default and i've Mm. never bothered to turn it off you go to some websites where the first thing you'll see is this splash page that says you know ads are important for how we uh generate revenue to to run this site so if you enjoy this site please consider turning your ad blocker off Mm. and uh opera makes that very easy you can do it just with a click or two and just kind of whitelist a certain website so that the ad blocker is on, uh, off whenever you go there but as you said it uh, it, it definitely you, you can definitely feel that uh, we're in a, a pretty uh, critical point of flux at the moment with internet and internet revenue mm-hmm. i was th- actually uh, this is ironic that you bring it up because i was thinking about this the other day that it, it's interesting how uh, television entertainment radio entertainment mag um, maybe not so much magazines but television and radio at least have always traditionally been run on this whole idea of marketing being the key source of revenue. Mm. So that the idea that uh, you would think that you've got all of these millions of people tuning in to watch this television program at this time on this television channel. So if you open this up so that you give businesses the opportunity to have their brand put there, the businesses are basically taking a gamble that out of one million people looking at this advertisement that they have there playing at this very popular television program you know a certain percentage of those people are going to be inspired to go out and purchase a product or at least they're going to have the product put in the back of their mind so that when they're at the shop looking at the options they think oh there's that one that i saw on that ad the other night Mm -hmm. so that's obviously for television of course for radio as well and you know we talked about before about radio and you know i'm listening to a lot more radio these days and obviously when we have radio programs in between and they have advertisements in between the music my kids say oh i hate the advertisements because you know that that i want to listen to music why do i have to listen to somebody talking about car insurance or something right and um you know i had to explain to them yes well it is it is annoying having a gap in the music so that we have to listen to this thing that doesn't that isn't really necessarily relevant to us however we have to remember that this is actually free and there are people who are you know, running this whole operation for us and we're able to tune into it for free. And, you know, I guess the opportunity for these people to have a way, obviously they need to be paid for the time and their experience and the know-how in order to put this kind of thing together. And this is just the way that it works. But anyway, in explaining that to my children, 
got me thinking that television, radio, that coal advertising paradigm for generating revenue from media, mm. it's, I guess, do you think that the internet became, the internet followed suit because it was developing at a speed perhaps when there were, people just didn't have an opportunity to properly think about another way to do things. So that was kind of like, well, here's a website and how do we get some money out of it? Okay, well, it's very popular. So how about, you know, we open it up and have the space available to people to put their advertisement, just like this was a TV program or it was a free magazine or it was a, a radio radio channel. Mm. Like, why do you think that uh, the internet has come to rely on advertising as its main source of revenue well firstly let me just put out there that i have no problem with advertising per se the problem on the internet which does not exist on radio and television is the tracking and the fact that adverts can run essentially unrestricted software mm. like you have no idea i mean just because it's JavaScript, you don't think of it as like a proper program, right? Mm. But JavaScript can do a lot. And you wouldn't just let some random site install an executable on your computer and execute it. That would mm. sound like madness, right? Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, JavaScript is sandboxed within the context of usually one tab in your browser. Spectre, mumble, mumble, the world is on fire. But <laughs> forget about that. Yes, it is a little bit more limited, but it can still use the resources on your computer. It can still like use a ton of your computer's RAM, fill up your CPU, do Bitcoin mining, <laughs> and send the results back to the host. Like, There's a lot that it can do mm. without breaking outside of the confines of that sandbox. So it seems mad that you would just let them run arbitrary code. Mm. Of course, unlike television and radio it's possible to do that and so it's sort of inevitable that they would have tried to do that right. like i think if television advertisers had had the ability to see exactly how long people's eyeballs spent looking at that particular advert and exactly how effective it was right they would have done that as well it just wasn't there was no way physical way to do it right mm, right so that is that is the problem with advertising on the internet it's not the fact that there is advertising it is that the advertising is, is too invasive and takes the form of running software that you have had no opportunity to make any decisions about whether you actually want it to run or not. Right. And it's, it's still, today, it's very all or nothing. Like, you can turn off all JavaScript and break half the internet. Or you can leave JavaScript turn on and not have any opportunity to choose which particular bits of JavaScript you actually want to run. Hmm. Ad blockers aside. Do you think that ad blockers and the uh, increasing awareness of tracking and ads and uh, the um, increasing quantity of different kinds of ad blocker options and, you know, even to the extent that you have browsers like Opera coming out in its default state with an ad blocker switched on, mm. do you think that this is a good thing? Because it kind of if you look at the, the, the sector of the internet that is powered by advertising revenue, you've now got the chief tool that people use to access that information actually preventing that generation of revenue. Right. And there are definitely sites that are suffering from this. Yeah. I mean, do you think that uh, this is a bad thing? 
or the, this this uh, kind of increase in popularity of of uh, ad blockers? I think that the rise of ad blockers and anti tracking software in browsers is a fundamentally necessary thing, but it is causing problems in the short term. Mm. And I don't know how those problems will get resolved in the long term. Mm. Because everyone wants everything for free. Right. Including me. Mm. <laughs> like, I go to The Economist website and more often than not get a banner up saying, you've already used up your free articles for this month. Right. So you have to subscribe if you want to read more. And I don't. Mm. <laughs> there's, there's enough content on the internet that I could not read that Economist article and keep scrolling up Twitter and another article will appear before me. Right. So I'm not really wanting for crap to read on the internet. Um, maybe, maybe that's part of the, the problem for these content producers. So, so I'm, I'm definitely guilty of this. Mm. And I would like for people who create content to be able to make a living doing that so that they can go on creating good content because the only the end result of everything just becoming fundamentally cheaper is that the quality of everything reduces right right like if it turns out that well suddenly they can only make a third of what they ever used to make from adverts mm. but nobody's willing to pay subscriptions to make up the difference so suddenly they're just making a third of the money they ever made. Mm. Well, there's no magic way that they're going to be able to continue making the same amount of content to the same quality, right? Something's got to give. Right. And I I don't want that to be the case. So, you know, in my idealistic universe, we would find some solution whereby, you know, I can't I can't think of a better idea than adverts. So let's say there are adverts, but that those adverts are somehow respectful that we have, and I don't know how this would work, but rather than, for example, rather than whitelisting specific websites, like you mentioned in the ad blockers, we might whitelist certain ad networks. Mm. We might start to define standards to which we hold the the groups that distribute these adverts. Mm. And then, you know, you can choose, well, am I going to allow adverts from Google AdSense or am I going to only allow adverts from this sort of boutique advertiser that I know respects my privacy or whatever mm. you know may, maybe that could work but at the same time well but then who wouldn't just turn them all off like mm. given that you've got the the power to have an experience of the internet without any adverts bothering you mm. like you have to be unusually conscientious and aware of the problems facing these websites and, and journalistic entities in order to go out of your way to sit down and go through the advert and say, okay, yeah, I want these ones, but I don't want these ones. Right. Like, so I'm not sure that's, that's really a workable solution either. I have an idea and this is probably being done already. So, you know, this is not a amazing revolutionary solution to everything. Right. But before I give you the idea, I just want to ask a question. Okay. That is how reluctant are you to pay for mobile apps less reluctant than most i think right i do like to pay money to support apps right so my question is what is different about supporting an app developer 
by a purchase of their app compared to, for example, if The Economist or any such kind of blog site with with interesting articles, Mm. if they started to sell their articles on a per article basis. So you can pay a small amount of money like $1 and then you'll get eternal access, infinite access to this one interesting article. Right. If if that was the situation, would you be just as reluctant to support the website, uh, however, still eager where you can to support an app developer? Yeah, it's interesting. I'd like to think yes. Yeah, yeah. I have a suspicion in practice, no. <laughs> uh, at least it's easier. And I, this depends on your priorities and your interests and so forth. But it's it's very easy for me to decide not to read an article on the internet. Mm. I mean, that said, yeah, no, there are times that people link a thing and I think I'd like to read that. Mm. And then it offers me a subscription. And I'm like, well, I, I no, I'm not. I don't want to read it enough to want to subscribe. Right. But I, I would chuck a dollar at, at reading this one episode. But I don't know. It, you know, that feels like it would add up quickly. And the other, the other thing, the other problem with it is that uh, it encourages a certain kind of, of article. Traditional journalism runs on the basis that you subscribe to the whole thing mm. and they have quite sensational articles right or articles that are obviously huge news that that they're going to cover that everyone's going to be interested in Mm. and people sort of subscribe mostly for those but they fund the smaller much narrower articles so everyone pays for the whole package and by doing that these large articles that pull people in sort of subsidize these small local articles. And if you're, if you're working on a, a per article basis, especially if, the, if it worked on the other side as well, that the people wrote the articles that lots of people paid a dollar for got more money than the people who wrote the articles that only a very few people paid a dollar for. Mm. I think you, you start to get into trouble because it discourages a certain kind of article. Yeah, my, the idea that I was uh, thinking to propose didn't involve the idea it wasn't actually you know pay per article Mm. because obviously that's limited to a certain kind of website you obviously need to have articles in in order to right um, right uh, but what i was wondering is uh, i'm the same as you and that is that mobile apps i feel far less inhibition when it comes to purchasing maybe it's because i've you know i was previously in the business of making mobile apps. And therefore, I I know it's kind of like knowing the people on the other side of the curtain and therefore you want to feel like you're supporting people like myself several years ago. That's definitely a part of it. But the other thing that I was wondering is that, you know, with something like Apple's App Store, it's incredibly convenient, you know. Uh, And if you you find an app that you like, it's, it's, you know, several clicks away, uh, and you've made a purchase, and then you know every month you'll get this itemized list of a, with a total amount of money mm. and the different things that you've purchased, and it's all very easy and convenient. And I do like having this list of the things, like a receipt, where you know you've paid this much, this much for this app, this much for this app, and then a total right. for this month. Right. Whereas if you think about the internet at large, when you've got uh, different websites where there are different kinds of models, subscription model here, or for example, a pay for article there, and you know, 
a subscription model, even if you were the kind of person that, you know, subscribed to newspapers, subscribed to magazines, and you're very comfortable with the idea of subscription, and perhaps you used to work in a publication or something, so you understand the importance of subscriptions and regular revenue through that, even if you were very open to subscription, therefore, Mm. you would still require you to, for example, okay, I want to make a subscription to The Economist, so I've got to sign up for an account, got to pick a password, got to write in my email address, right. got to switch off the you know receive newsletter bu- uh, button, and then got to fill out my profile. Then there's privacy controls, and then there's got a, there's a billing section, and then there's the enter your credit card, and then you know there's a whole lot of steps. And then once you've done that, and if you ever up- unsubscribe, they will not let you forget it. Yeah, like you're you're signing yourself up to a lifetime of email when you subscribe right, to right. anything. And then of course, um, uh, you know, once you've done that, that's just one website. But let's say you want to read the Guardian, and you want to read the Financial Times, and you want to read the Economists, and you want to read mm. various ones, and they're all different subscriptions with their different accounts and different passwords and different credentials and different terms of service and all all of this kind of stuff. Mm. That's why I was thinking, I wonder if uh, one solution, it's an impossible solution because you would never find a way to, it'd be impossible to do this with all these different companies cooperating. But if internet subscription, maybe not subscription, but internet payments in general was something that could be done with the convenience of like the app store. So you're not looking at your credit card statement mm. mixed in with your shopping and your, you know, all of the other stuff for your lifestyle. You're just looking at a single list of the things that you have bought on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sounding more and more naive the more that I go on, but, you know, <laughs> uh, my point is that that the convenience of the app store, I wonder if that's had, if that has uh, had any effect on... You know, people like us perhaps are not a good example, but, you know, the general relative ease that people have with buying apps compared to paying for things on the internet, I wonder if just the convenience of app stores in general could have something to do with that. I mean, yes, there are ways that that can help. I think it is possible to subscribe to many publications, including The Economist, also The Washington Post and some others, through either the Apple News app or as an in-app purchase in the app for that publication. Mm. And so that means you don't need a whole account and you can you can do it all from the same account that you use to buy apps with. I think it also means that you only get access to them from your phone, your your iOS device, yeah. your phone or your iPad or whatever. Right. Um which you know may not be what you want. Uh, I'm I'm not sure about that. You know, they may find some way to link it, but I can only imagine that if they're linking it they are linking it by allowing you to make an account with like The Economist and then linking the Apple payment account with your Economist account. And so that would allow you to log in on a computer and, and read it, but it would also mean that you are still making another account. Right. Although I guess the payment side of things is is still separate. So but I, I'm not really sure about how that works. I did try that out once with the English edition of the German newspaper Der Spiegel. Hmm which I got a six-month subscription to uh, through the app. Uh, and I don't think I ever read. But, <laughs> I, <laughs> but it was very easy. It was just like any other in-app purchase. Right. And yes, I, I think there is zero chance I would have tried that by going to the Der Spiegel website and making myself an account and giving them my credit card details and all the rest of it. So, right. you know, it, it has value. 
it means that whoever is processing this centralized system that everyone uses takes a cut. Mm. So it's it's either increasing the price of your subscription or taking money away from the True. the journalist involved. Maybe that's a trade off that's worth making. Mm. You know, maybe the the extra custom they get from that is worth whatever cut the uh, the payment processor takes. Mm. Uh, that's how credit cards work already, right? It's just you're adding another layer to that. And the App Store as well, of course. And and the App Store. App Stores. So, you know, I mean, there's interestingly, there is a movement in apps towards a subscription model rather than a, a pay once model. So if anything, it feels like uh, things are moving away from the, you know, how you, how you started off this this suggestion when you were saying if you could pay one dollar for an article or something mm. if it feels like it's almost going the other way that rather than articles becoming like apps that you pay for individually apps are becoming more like newspapers that you pay a subscription to get constant updates yeah that's a really controversial controversial topic in uh, audio production right at the moment because uh, a lot of people are really, really unhappy with this tendency at the moment for the large DAW, that's digital audio workstation, manufacturers to, to be heavily considering the idea of subscription models because uh, there are also plug-in manufacturers who are doing that as well. The elephant in the room there, uh, as probably anybody who's in audio production is thinking right now if they're listening, is uh, uh, Avid's Pro Tools. Pro Tools is kind of like the, um, at least for the, it's changing a bit now, but for the past 20, 25 years, it was the sort of default for high-end studio, music studio, and um, also post-production software. Mm. And Pro Tools controversially, several years ago, I think it is now, switched to a subscription model. Right. And that has, uh, that caused a, a huge outcry. And obviously, you've got Adobe doing the same thing as well. And, um, right. you know, this idea. I mean, so Adobe did it. Quite a while ago now, I think five, maybe even seven years ago. It's yes. a long time ago. And and there was a huge outcry at the time. I feel like that's died down now and people have just learned to live with it. I definitely don't hear as much of that anymore. But I'm uh, Because I do sound and I do graphics and I do gra- vector graphics mostly. So I use Illustrator, but then I need Photoshop and I also use Lightroom and then I use Audition as well for, for audio stuff. I use that a lot and... Uh, previously I was also using InDesign and, you know, for me, creative cloud actually represents, uh, excellent value actually for me, mm. but I know that I'm, I'm not the majority and, you know, a lot of people just need Photoshop or they just need, they do offer a Photoshop only subscription though. So, I mean, it's a difficult thing. I, I understand the, the feeling behind it that you feel like it used to be, you just walk in a shop and buy a boxed piece of software mm. and then you you owned it or you felt like you owned it right and uh, <laughs> you know you could use it indefinitely and that you know that was great for the user but if it turns out to be unsustainable then i think you know people making apps have to try out other models because otherwise they're, they're going to go out of business and so yeah. it, it is a, a difficult problem there is some they're not doing it for fun yeah, right, right. <laughs> there is some it is worth mentioning at this point uh there is one daw that has is trying an interesting model that has also received a lot of praise and a lot of criticism mm. that is a newer kid on the block uh from berlin from berlin they're all from berlin <laughs> <laughs> but um there's a new kid on the block, uh, not so much new anymore, but uh, a company called Bitwig, 
Mm. Bitwig is uh, it's a rather excellent DAW with some fresh new ideas came around in the uh, I can't remember how many years ago now, but uh, Bitwig's model is is curious. They switched to a subscription model maybe about a year ago, but their subscription model is a bit unusual in that the way that it works is you pay a yearly fee mm. and that it represents your subscription. However, the difference between Bitwig's model and, say, Creative Cloud is that you can, you can if you decide that you see the next version of Bitwig has features that you don't really need mm. and you feel that the current version you're using is adequate for you for the moment, mm. you can actually stop paying your subscription mm. and you'll still have a perpetual license of the version of the program where you stopped paying. Mm. So you kind of own it. If you want constant updates every year and you want access to the new features, then you have to keep paying the subscription. But the idea is that you own the software in that if you stop paying the subscription, you can continue using it. And if you want to, like, for example, okay, so I've, I've been using it for 11 months and then suddenly the 12th month comes and the new version comes out and it doesn't have anything I want in it. So I'm not going to pay this year. However, the next year, for example, if you've used the version, that older version for two years and then suddenly some great new feature comes into Bitwig that you want to use, mm-hmm. you can then actually restart the subscription at that point right? and, and, and restart paying every year to do it that way if you like. And right, right. so that was their the way that they addressed the situation. And the key criticism that people have uh, been very, very vocal about this is that, well, that's all and well, that's all good and well for Bitwig. Mm. However, when operating systems change, things break Mm. and audio apps often tend to have trouble when there are OS updates. And the criticism that's been given to Bitwig is that it's great, it's a nice idea. However, once we... Once we update our OS, yeah. there's no guarantee that this old version is going to continue to work, which means you're kind of <laughs> already forcing people to constantly update anyway. So, you know. That's exactly the reason subscriptions exist in the first place. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, of course. It, it takes work to make it work with the new version of the OS. Right. That's why they need you to keep paying, right. because they need you to pay them for their work. Right. I mean, so that's that's how this whole thing came out in the first place. And that would have been the case with boxed software. I mean, if you had an old version of a piece of software and you didn't buy the latest version and the old version was written for an old version of the OS, exactly the same thing would happen, you know, unless they released an update for the old version. I think the thing that the difference there is that there is a feeling that updating your OS is a necessity in this day and age because of security concerns and things like and stability and things like that. Sure. So it's not a choice. So if you consider then it's it's not your choice whether or not you want to update your OS. So for example, okay, I've got this this version let's say 3 of Bitwig mm. and it's working very nice with my OS version mm. 16 mm. or whatever. And then OS version 17 comes out and, you know, you've got all these fancy features, but you've also got these critical security updates, which are uh, important for the stability and the security and privacy and all that of your your system. Right. You're kind of locked into upgrading to the operating system 17. And now Bitwig 3 doesn't work anymore. And you kind of would feel in that situation that, well, yeah, okay, it's fair enough that if if I want to have Bitwig 4, which works with this operating system 17, Mm. I have to start paying for it again. 
but then I didn't upgrade my OS because I felt like it. It was strongly recommended to me because of these security concerns and fixes and all that sure. kind of stuff. So yeah, I, I mean, I can understand. I can understand that point of view, but that that is not Bitwig's fault, and they, I, I feel like they need to get paid for their work. That's that's why the subscription model has been brought forward as a compromise mm. of like, well, okay, how can we, how can we deal with this? truth which is true that there is more of a necessity to upgrade more frequently now than there used to be mm. but still be able to support development on the product one thing that's sort of i don't quite understand about this bitwig thing is is how it's fundamentally different from just buying each new version of the software i mean it sounds to me as if if it's a subscription that you can stop at any time and and choose not to get that year's version of the software that sounds like well, you bought the previous year's version of the software and you decide not to buy the next year's and then you decide to buy the, the one the year afterwards. The only difference that I can tell is that the default is for it to be bought automatically if it's a subscription. Whereas if it's if it's the old, you know, the traditional just buy an upgrade model, then you have to actively choose to go and buy the upgrade. Mm. But it's from your description, it sounds like it's basically just formalizing the process of, of what already happened because if you can access continue to access it you know after you've stopped the subscription then it's just like buying a piece of software i think there's uh, probably an important key piece of information that i'm leaving out of my description of their subscription model because i i don't remember it exactly and yeah we can probably put uh, a link in our notes for people to go and actually read if they're interested right but it was that was their assuming then that this hole in my explanation is filled by something very logical in their policy uh, that was their way of uh, handling the situation of subscription versus single version purchase right. and owning software because that's the the main thing that people uh, certainly the way that I feel with regard to creative cloud you mentioned that there is a like an individual subscription license for photoshop but i don't use photoshop i use illustrator mm. and uh, illustrator i believe doesn't have such a thing right and if i cancel my creative cloud subscription it's very very costly to begin with because i don't know if you know this but if you cancel a creative cloud subscription you need to pay half of the remaining months uh, okay. from between when you uh, you cancel and when the anniversary of your sign up was sure and then after that you don't actually have access to the software like you have no license for it so right. all of those illustrator files sitting on my my system and audition files and you know yeah. indesign files i just can't touch anymore so yeah i mean you're using all th i think that i actually i think there is an individual illustrator license i say this because i took it i got a year's illustrator license when i wanted to learn illustrator right and i i used that for a year and then i canceled it when the year was up so i didn't suffer from this early cancellation fee right but yeah yeah i mean you know if you're using i'm using all of them so illustrator and indesign and audition so it does creative cloud does does represent very good value for me even though um there is that funny feeling that well if i stopped paying adobe it's not an, i just can't use their software anymore and you know right for, i mean i guess in in my line of work not being able to use their software in itself is a problem so you know continuing to pay for it is is justified in that sense right yeah Interesting, isn't it? Subscriptions. I, yeah. I mean, it's it's there's two sort of opposite ends of the scale. The middle doesn't seem to be so much affected by this. But the, the super pro app, Photoshop and DAWs and things like that seems to be a thing that they're going for in a big way. 
and it's also being kind of hailed as the the savior for the small independent app creator people who have have struggled on the app store where where most apps are are just one or two dollars and it's very hard to create a polished good quality app for that price Mm. and so the, the hope is that by having a subscription which is you know two or three dollars per year apps will be able to continue to support their app for longer Mm. and and we'll see how it goes i hope it works out but i i do you know i i personally feel more of a reluctance to sign up for a subscription than to just buy an app on a whim Mm. so it's difficult it's a difficult problem yeah i have a feeling that um the internet is definitely heading towards some new kind of system, new models, new ideas are, are going to be coming through pretty soon, I guess, because uh, as we were, as we, you know, we started talking about ad blockers, you know, the the rise of prevalence of ad blockers is sort of forcing their hand. We need to find new ways to get revenue and right. new ways to engage people in our content and make people feel comfortable with paying for it because it costs money to produce. Right. It, it all seems to be coming to a head somehow and that we're going to be seeing some new ideas coming soon. So that's, that's exciting, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll we'll see what happens. I can't quite, you know. Another thing that we haven't uh, mentioned, uh, but it's it's also interesting to note is podcasts. Mm. We don't have any advertising at the moment, but a lot of podcasts do, and the majority of podcast advertising takes the form of actual readings by the hosts of the podcast. All oh, right, they have made a deal with some company that wants to advertise. Mm. And they have a slot where they themselves read some copy and sometimes talk about their own experience with the product or whatever it may be. Mm. And it's a, it's a very personal thing. And that seems to be working very well for podcasts because listeners feel like they, you know, they, they trust the host right. much more than it doesn't feel like you're being taken out of the experience so much like it, like, you know, with the radio. Right. And you suddenly hear a jingle and then you, you hear some advert that you've heard a thousand times before. Right. You know, even if it's an advert for the same, thing you get a lot of the same products and services that advertise on lots of different podcasts and so you hear these adverts for for audible or squarespace or whatever it may be right over and over again listening to lots of different podcasts but everyone brings their own personality to that advert and even the same person from week to week advertising the same service will sort of put a different spin on it each time Mm. and that sort of feels really nice i hope that that is sustainable because there is a little bit of a you know, some podcasts are starting to, and some podcast hosts are starting to experiment with injecting ads into podcasts where you can sort of mark your podcast with with places that there's a pause and they will insert a little radio style, you know, and then, then play just a recorded advert. And different people downloading the same podcast might get a different advert, you know. Okay. And that's that's much more, you know, and then when you start going down that road, then you start being able to do tracking because you can see who's getting which adverts and it all starts to go down a a dark road that we've seen before on the web so i'm kind of hoping hoping that the the very personal intimate nature of the 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 majority of the podcasts that i listen to and the way that adverts work there turns out to be sustainable and something that can continue because i think it's a you know it's a that is the most sort of healthy form of advertising that i've encountered I so everybody switch to duck duck go it's good <laughs> highly recommended is that <laughs> <laughs> they're not actually paying us they're... <laughs> it's supposed oh. to wait until they say they're going to pay us before we start oh whoops 